best looking, oh, best looking children's ministry director I ever saw. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week and it was kind of interesting that this was our topic today of, of trust and how the Christian life really is all about trust. Um, it's probably the, the best synonym we have for faith. The word faith is to trust, to trust God's word, to trust God's ways, to trust God's character. Um, but institutions, whether they be secular or even churches oftentimes, um, are working against that, that trust. And, um, and we've seen that a lot in our culture. We've seen that a lot in the world. We've seen that a lot even with churches uh, in the headlines. The elders are working on um, just some policies and practices to, to put in place for, um, for ensuring that we, to the best of our human ability, are a trustworthy institution where we don't um, hide or harbor sin or things like that. We want, we want this to be a safe place for children and for the vulnerable. However, this podcast I was listening to said something interesting as it was talking about trust and, and being able to trust the church in a world where trust is often broken and, uh, and, and pretty scarce. And the interesting thing uh, was the, the statement that was made that I thought, oh, that's so true, is that we can trust the church because we can trust the word of God. And so we're not asking you to trust us because of who we are. We're not asking you to trust us because of our character or our nature. We're asking you to trust the church, to, to partner with us as parents who are making disciples and a church who makes disciples of kids through adults because we are committed to proclaiming and teaching the word of God. And the word of God is always trustworthy. And so that is what we are asking you to put your trust in, is in God and in his word. With that, let me read to you our text today coming out of Matthew chapter 6. If you're looking at the outline today and you're worried, uh, that's probably for good reason. Um, the ladies came into fold the worship folders this week and they took one look at the outline and said, how long are we going to be here this Sunday? And I said, a long, long time. Now, I'm going to do my best to move quickly through our text today. There are, for the most part, very, very simple uh, truths, but yet very profound. So follow along with me as I read to you Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who, is in, who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like, like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their re reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your trustworthiness in preserving your word, 
in giving us your word. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that, um, that we can trust your goodness, that though our flesh may fail, you never will, and, and your word will never fail us. And, and Lord, while you may not always do what we want you to do, we can be assured that you always do what is good for us, and you are working all things out to the good of those who love you. Even in the hardest circumstances of our lives, Lord, you, you, you allow those so that we might look to you and, and find joy and hope in you. And Lord, we pray that, that that would be our reality this morning, that we would look to you. Lord, we, we admit our dependence upon your spirit to not only understand what your word says, but to live it out. Lord, when it confronts us, let us submit to it. When it calls us to action, let us obey it, Lord. Lord, we want to pray for um, Rosa as she has fallen this last week and broke her ankle, and now we found out we'll be having surgery on Tuesday. Lord, um, surgery while you're pregnant is a big deal, and so we pray for safety for her and for the baby. We pray for uh, energy and strength and rest for Norberto as he cares for her and for the kids, Lord, and we just pray for a quick recovery for her and a safe surgery both for her and for the baby, Lord. Lord, we want to continue to pray this month for the Reisters. We thank you for the two short-term partners who are going to be coming, Elizabeth and Amelia. We thank you for their willingness to come and spend some time there. Lord, we pray that you would help them to get acclimated to the culture in Japan, to, uh, to learn the language as much as possible in the time that they're there. Lord, give uh, Bob and Teresa wisdom in developing plans for these new workers, not only the short-term workers, but the long-term ones who are coming as well. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that you would use all of those who are, uh, who are there, whether it be long-term or short-term, to spread the gospel, to, to unify your church, to see people saved and come to a saving knowledge of you. And Lord, that's what we want today. Lord, for, for those of us who know you, we, we pray that you would draw us into a deeper relationship with you. And for those of you who don't, Lord, or for those of us who don't, we pray that you would draw us into a relationship with you for the first time. We might see your goodness in your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall from last week, chapter 5 left us exactly, left off exactly where it started, with our spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying that blessed, remember that's a word that means happy, are those who are poor in spirit. And we're left on this note in chapter 5 of being told that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is an impossible command, certainly in this life. None of us have been or are or will be perfect until we are perfected by God in eternity. But we are still called to that standard. And so Jesus begins chapter 6, which wouldn't have been chapter 6, he begins this next movement in the Sermon on the Mount in telling us how to live that out. As the first uh, audience would have heard this, it would have been a po an impossible reality, having been told not only that their righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, who were considered professional holy people. I think so oftentimes, if I can be honest, we do this to our pastors. We forget that uh, we're just people, uh, we're not professional holy people, we're sinners like everybody else, desperately in need of grace. Spend much time with us and you will find out very quickly that we too smell and act like sheep. Only Jesus is the good shepherd. And if our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, the first century audience in that day would have heard that as an impossible task. You want me to be more righteous than them? Not possible. And then Jesus adds on top of that, not only must we have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how do we do that? Jesus begins here to tell us. And in verse 1, he calls us to pay careful attention. That's what the word beware means. Uh, look closely at, pay careful attention to, practicing your righteousness 
before other people. The word for righteousness, is a, it's a very full-orbed word. It's a, it's a word that would encompass anything that could be considered done in service to God, whether that's parenting for the glory of God, working your job for the glory of God, participating in the church for the glory of God. Whatever it is that we do in service to God is righteousness. And though Jesus here deals primarily with religious activities, it's not limited to that scope. It's not, what Jesus is saying here is not limited to what is done inside the church. And so Jesus tells us, beware, pay careful attention to practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now that's an important thing. There's a TV show that Jennifer and I watched at one point in time that twisted this passage to say that you should always pray in private. Jesus is not saying that you must only pray in private or give in private or fast in private or practice your righteousness in private. In fact, as we see this unfold, we're going to find particularly as it pertains to prayer, Jesus can't be telling us that we should only pray in private because Scripture elsewhere commands us to pray together. In fact, I think this passage does, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. The, the point here is not that you should not pray in public. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then the warning for, this is interesting because for then, uh, which, which then gives us the warning following, actually translates four words in Greek, get condensed down to this for then. And it's a very emphatic and urgent statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Them. Because if you do, you should know that you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. To to practice your righteousness before people. To to be concerned about the form of your prayers so that people might be well of you. To, To give in such a way as to attract attention. And to let people know how much you give. To fast in such a way that, oh man, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm, I'm hungry and I'm fasting right now. And, and doing things in order to be seen eliminates our reward from our Father. And notice the emphasis on our Father who is in heaven. The, re- the emphasis here is not on a reward being in heaven The emphasis is on a reward from the Father who is in heaven, who will reward these religious activities. But the reality is, we're all prideful people. Sometimes that pride comes in the form of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Sometimes that pride comes in what might often be false humility. What do I mean by false humility? I have heard so many times, I know God can forgive, just not me. I've done too many bad things. If you've ever heard anybody say that, that is not a statement rooted in humility. That is a statement rooted in pride. That you are such a special class of sinner, that you are a sinner heads above everybody else. So that while God can forgive everybody else, you are the one exceptional sinner whom God cannot forgive. It's rooted in pride. We're prideful people. And and we love to be recognized. We love to be acknowledged. I would say this, this passage is also not saying that we shouldn't recognize others. When you see somebody doing something good and commend them, you are not removing their reward. It does not, nothing in this passage says, don't commend those who live righteously. It says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Maybe there is nobody in this room 
who has the greater temptation to this sin than somebody who has to get up here and preach a sermon Sunday in and Sunday out and fear and wonder at times what people think. It's really, really easy to fall temptation into this, to live out our righteousness, to be seen by other people. Leon Morris said that the believer must always keep in mind that the act is righteous only if it is what purports to be in the service of God. When instead it is done as a means of enhancing the reputation of the doer of the deed, then it is no longer a simple act of divine service. In other words, our service can either be in the service of God's reputation or in the service of our reputation, but it can never simultaneously be both. It will only be one or the other. And so Jesus starts out by giving us three areas of practicing righteousness. Three areas of practicing righteousness. The first is giving in verses 2 through 4. Now, what I want to share in each of these is a proscription and a prescription. Most of us know what a prescription is. When you go to the doctor's office and he sent, used to be write something on a pad, now he just electronically sends it to the, uh, the pharmacy and, and you're told to do something. Do this. Take this pill three times a day for seven days. That's a prescription. But when you go to the cardiologist and he says, don't eat salt, that's a don't do. That's a proscription. And so here Jesus gives us in each of these three categories, these three areas of practicing righteousness, he gives us a proscription and a prescription. And so we start out with the proscription in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street, that they must be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. I was really thinking I wasn't going to say this because I don't know anything about the context of it. But I do find it incredibly interesting that you can walk into the new women's center at the Christian Aid Center and find a large board with names of donors. Now, if the Christian Aid Center said, we're grateful and we want to acknowledge these people, wonderful. I'm not faulting the Christian Aid Center here. And that's why I'm really careful with this. But... I bet the likelihood is pretty high that there were some who would not have given money if their name had not gone on the board. It's practicing righteousness to be seen. I've been in churches where there's plaques on the backs of the pews about who gave the money to purchase the pew. Or in the Bibles, I've seen as well. Now again, when we want to acknowledge something that somebody else has done, there's no fault there. But when we demand that our acts of righteousness be seen by others, well, verse 2, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, when you give, don't give to be seen. The prescription is don't let anyone know what you're doing, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I think there's a lot of people who have done linguistic gymnastics to try and say what the left and the right hand is. I'm not sure that that's Jesus' point. I think Don Carson captures uh, the, the heart of this very well when he said, the way to avoid hypocrisy is not to cease giving, but to do so with such secrecy that we scarcely know what we have given. That we do so with such secrecy that we scarcely know what we have given. Given. I think that's Jesus' point. And so the proscription is don't give to be seen. In other words, the prescription is give secretly so that you hardly even know what you're doing. And then the result, verse 4, is that so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's God who will reward that kind of righteousness. The second area is praying. 
I would draw our attention to one other aspect of these that I forgot to mention as we consider them as well. The three are praying, giving, praying, and fasting. But what's interesting is that Jesus, in all three of these, he does not bother to command it. He simply assumes that it's a reality. He assumes that you will give. And so he doesn't instruct you to give, he instructs us how to give. He assumes that we will pray. So he doesn't say, give to the needy and sound no trumpet. He says, when you give to the needy and when you pray and when you fast. All of these things are expectations of those who are seeking to live out the righteousness of God in this world. And so the first one is giving, the second one is praying. Like giving, Jesus doesn't command it, he just assumes that you will pray, and then he gives instructions on how to pray. And we're going to come back to the bulk of his uh, instruction at the end of the sermon. But, but basically, the proscription and the prescription are the same. Look with me at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You may have heard before that this word, in fact, the Greek word is super similar to the word hypocrite in English. It's where we get this from. And, and hypocrite is the right translation. It was also used in terms of, uh, of actors people who played a part other than who they were. That, that's what an actor does. They, they play a character that is different from who they actually are. And so there's something to be said for this idea of hypocrisy, that when we give to be seen, when we pray to be seen, and when we fast to be seen, we're, we're playing at these things rather than, than them being something that is part of who we are. And so when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That is the proscription. The prescription is truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We must Pray not in order to be seen. Maybe the best example of this would be, uh, we'll probably come back to this example, but the Pharisee and the tax collector. One who stood in the temple and prayed to be seen versus the tax collector off in the corner who beat his breast and said, Father, be gracious to me, a sinner. And Jesus asked his disciples, which one goes away justified? If prayer is talking to God, Praying to be seen by others is not really prayer. If you lead a Bible study, and this is something we have to be super careful of as pastors, it's like, I didn't get my last point in. I'll just pray that point. And instead of actually preaching that point, you pray that point so that people hear your, your last point. Right? Prayer is, to, is talking to God. It's not talking to people. And prayer can't be tacked on to the end of a sermon to get in what we ran out of time for or in a Bible study or, or whatever it is you, know, you want so-and-so who is, is hearing your prayer to hear. Prayer is between us and God, even when it's public, and, and it should be public. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then the last area of righteousness that Jesus instructs us on is fasting. And this might be an area that's most disconnected for us. Uh, the church today doesn't fast much. Uh, so let me just, if I can, uh, steer you to a resource, but then summarize real quickly what fasting is all about. I, I had no um, value for fasting of any type until I read a little book by John Piper called A Hunger for God. And if you have an interest in fasting, I would strongly recommend you pick up that little book and read it. But basically, fasting is about two things. Fasting is about replacement and reminder. Replacement means that we replace one activity with another. And so if we're fasting, let's, let's say food, for a day, in that time, we would replace meal prep and meal eating with prayer or something like that. We would replace one activity for another. And so fasting is first about replacement. It is about spending time on something that ultimately matters. And then there's also a reminder. 
And I think food, for those who are able, is probably the best type of fasting to do because you feel hungry. It has physical effects on you. And in that moment when we're fasting and we're hungry or maybe even hangry and we want food to eat, it is a reminder to us of Jesus' words that we can't live on bread alone. That as much as I want food right now, I need God more than that. As much as I desire food in this moment and desire to eat, I need to desire the Lord more than I desire to eat. And so fasting is about replacement, replacing one activity for another, and then reminder of our desire and our need for God. But Jesus says, starting in verse 16, when you fast, again, just assume, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. There's the principle played out in all of these. If we we, uh, give or pray or fast or any other act of righteousness, these are just the examples. Remember verse 1 points us to, to practicing any righteousness. If we have any act of righteousness that, that is in service to God that we do to be seen by others, our reward is is simply in the being seen. God is not going to reward that motive. Verse 17, what do we to do? But when you fast, anoint your head with oil. It's, it's, uh, it was a refreshing reality. Clean yourself up, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so the reality of what Jesus is talking about here is practicing our righteousness for the glory of God and for his reward and not to be seen by others. But the bulk of the sermon on, or this part of the Sermon on the Mount is given to prayer. And so I want to turn our attention there because Jesus really teaches us in this passage how to pray. And if you're like me, Like, I read stories about pastors and missionaries and all these people in the past who just loved to pray and pray and pray and pray. Prayer is not an experience like that for me. Prayer is a struggle for me. My mind often wanders, and then I have to ask God's forgiveness and refocus. I have to use a list, because if I don't have something in front of me, I'll be thinking about 200 other things. Prayer is a a discipline, and it takes work. And so uh, how, how do we put the work in to have a meaningful prayer time? Well, I think that is what Jesus instructs us in here. And so I want to close our time by asking the question, how do we pray? How, how, how does Jesus instruct us to pray? And he gives a, a few uh, things. Number one is he says that our prayer must be in sincerity, in sincerity. Look with me at verses five and six. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Prayer, as I've already mentioned, is talking to God. Therefore, prayer that is done to be seen by others is insincere. It must be a sincere, whether it's private or whether it's public, it must be a sincere attempt to speak to God. Again, Jesus isn't forbidding public prayer. In, in 1 Timothy, prayer is commanded all throughout the past, or the, the epistles, the Pauline epistles. Paul asked the church to pray for him. We see that prayer was a normal part of worship in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the early church. Daniel, even after the edict is made not to pray, uh, he, he prays, I guess it's publicly because he goes into his house and he opens his window, but it was the same practice as he had done every day. He didn't change anything. Again, the greatest example of this is the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. It was the sinner who went away justified. The Pharisee stood in the the temple and he prayed what was no doubt an eloquent and probably even biblically informed prayer. 
It was just done for the purpose that he might look good and not in a sincere effort to speak to the Lord. And so it was the tax collector who off in the corner, not being seen by anybody, on his knees, beat his breast and cried out to God to have mercy on him who went away justified. Our our prayers must first be a sincere effort to talk to God. Secondly, they must be done in simplicity. In simplicity. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, it's not about the words that we use or the amount of words that we use that incline God to answer us. I'll never forget having been on the mission field one time, and uh, I was kind of a short-term, but I was with these missionaries for weeks, and a team was there that was only coming in for one week, and we set up for this this outreach ministry that we were going to do, and uh, we kind of gathered to pray, and there's one guy, I mean, lots of people prayed, but there was one guy who prayed. And man, did he pray. Like, he prayed King James prayers. Like, this is not how this guy talked, but it turned into these and thous and thines. And the more King James he got, the more the people around him seemed to to say amen and agree with him and echo his prayers. I think Jesus is speaking against that here. God is not going to hear you more because of the big words you use or the old words you use. That's not the point. I think oftentimes we we get caught in this mindset of, man, I have to pray this prayer in the right way and with the right words. And you know what that does? I think it does two things. It removes the relational aspect of prayer. It removes the relational aspect of prayer where we are meeting with and talking to a father who loves us. These formula prayers, they're kind of like slot machines where if you put in the right token and pull the handle, maybe something good will come out. Well, if I pray and I say the right words, maybe God will give me what I want. But we're reminded that he knows what we need before we ask. I think the idea of not having repetitious words also battles this idea of an unwilling God. We hear this in statements like, oh, just just pray it through. Just pray it through. Just storm the gates of heaven. All God's blessings are locked up there and the drawbridge is up, the gates are closed, he's tight-fisted and not generous and unwilling, but boy, if you beat down the gates of heaven enough, then maybe God's blessing will pour forth. What Jesus says here is that he already knows. And if an earthly father won't give his son a stone when he asks for bread, how much more willing is God? We must not have views in prayer that we're trying to extract something from a stingy deity. Like like the uh, prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel as they dance and cut and chant and yell louder and louder and louder for hours thinking if they just do more and more and more and more then maybe Baal will give them what they want. And in great contrast to that, Elijah kneels down, prays a simple prayer and everything is consumed by fire. That's not an unwilling God. And we're not trying to pry things out of his hands. He wants us to pray sincerely and with simplicity. This does not forbid long prayers either. Because the reality is Jesus spent many a long night in prayer. And so this is not saying, hey, your prayers cannot be long. It's a statement that Uh, Long prayers just for the sake of being long with repetitious words, thinking that if you just 
pray over and over and over again, oh please, oh please, oh please, oh please, God, that he is going to be more likely to meet your needs. Number three is a little bit of a stretch, but I'm a Baptist preacher and I had to have an S word. So uh, that's simultaneously, simultaneously. What I really mean by simultaneously here is together, is together. Notice when Jesus instructs prayer, he doesn't say, pray this, my Father who is in heaven. It's our Father. Notice he doesn't say, give me this day our daily bread. He says, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. In fact, what we see here is a pattern set in the rest of the New Testament that almost every single prayer you will find or request for prayer you will find in Scripture is a prayer to pray together. And if I might be so bold for a minute, it does lead me to wonder why most of you don't join us once a month for our corporate prayer. Are you really so busy that once a month you can't gather with us here for half an hour to pray? Our prayers are, are largely both commanded and exemplified in Scripture as prayers that happen together. And so we pray simultaneously. Thirdly, we pray, or is that fourthly? I, I've got my numbers off here. One, sincerity. Two, simplicity. Three, simultaneously. And four, substantially. What do I mean by substantially? Well, Jesus is about to give us what is often called the Lord's Prayer, which is in reality the disciples' prayer, because this is a model prayer. We know that it, this isn't Jesus praying for, uh, for his sins to be forgiven. He had no sins to be forgiven. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's modeling prayer for us. It is not a prayer to be memorized and recited. That's just heaping up empty phrases. It's doing, when we just blindly recite the Lord's Prayer, it's doing the very thing he's instructing us not to do here. What he's doing is he's teaching us to pray. There are actually six requests here. I'm going to lump them up into uh, to four, or, or I mean to five, but, but really there are six requests here. And, and it's interesting that the first three requests are all spiritual things, and the last three requests are are all physical things. And I think one of the things we see here is this pattern of prioritizing the spiritual. If we pray for people's healings, but not for spiritual matters, we've reversed the, the priorities. God does not prioritize the physical. It is temporal. It is wasting away. He prioritizes the spiritual. And so if your prayer time is cut short... Wouldn't you want to have prayed, for some reason, somebody interrupts you, some emergency happens, wouldn't you want your prayer time to be primarily about things that are spiritual in nature? It's interesting to me that each of the requests in this prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation. These six requests, they're all imperatives in Greek. They're all commands. Now, this is really interesting because um, we would probably never pray in such a bossy way as, as to command God what to do. Well, that's not the point so much in Greek. In Greek, oftentimes, petitions to those of a higher rank, whether that be like a higher military rank or a higher social status, or particularly to God, are placed in an imperative mood when they're urgent requests. And so we shouldn't think that what Jesus is instructing to do, us to do is to command God about how he should act in the world, but simply that we should entreat God with great urgency. And so what is the substance of our prayers to be? First off, glorification. A, on your outline there, verse 9, glorification. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be 
your name. The first thing to pray for is that God's name would be honored. His name is representative of who he is. And so when a biblical author uses the word Lord, that's stressing God's authority. When they use the word Christ, that's stressing his saving nature. And Yahweh is his covenant name given to Moses on Sinai. And Jesus uses none of those here. Notice what he uses. He says, our Father. And the rest of this unfolds in that fatherly language. That we're praying to somebody not distant or far off or uncaring or stingy, but to a good and gracious Father. And so the first thing we should pray, and I'm not necessarily saying you have to pray in this order, um, and I don't think Jesus is either. So when I say first, I'm speaking more to the outline in front of you than to how you actually have to structure your prayer. But we should pray that God would be glorified. And so A is glorification. B is submission. Submission. And I'm going I'm to lump two requests into one. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It starts with the request for his kingdom. I think there's two senses in which we should pray for this kingdom. The first is praying that God's rule would be honored in the lives of his people. I think far too often it's easy to overlook the necessity of obedience in our spiritual walk. And so we first should pray that God's rule, God's reign in our lives should be honored by his people. And second, that Jesus would return and set up his millennial kingdom. The second request, again though connected to the first, is that his will would be done. That his people would do his will and that in the world and everywhere his will would be done. D.A. Carson, Don Carson again says something wonderful here. He says these first three petitions... Though they focus on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will are nevertheless prayers that he may act in such a way that his people hallow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will. Now here's the, the, the one-two punch. It is therefore impossible to pray this prayer in sincerity without humbly committing oneself to such a course. If we're going to pray that God would be glorified, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done, we have to live lives that, that reflect that. And so when we're mistreated by our spouse or our children, when we're hangry because we're fasting, when things just aren't going our way, or we're tired or stressed or sad or fearful, or anything else, how do we respond to the people around us? How, how do we live this out? If we're going to pray that God would be glorified and that people would submit to his reign and do his will, we have to seek to glorify him and submit to his reign and do his will. I also think it's impossible to pray that God would be glorified and that his kingdom would become and his will would be done without being evangelistic. Because if we lack evangelism in our lives, if we refuse to open our mouths to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus, can we really say we want him to be glorified? Or that we want his will to be done? Or that we want his kingdom to come? I think if we really want to evaluate our lives and see how we do at these things, we must look at how are we doing at sharing the gospel and discipling others? How are we doing at helping others to live this out? And how are we doing about at telling others who don't know Jesus what he has done? Fourthly, C on your outline is supplication. Supplication. This, is, this simply means asking for what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. The reality is that God provides all we have whether it's through our work or through miraculous means. He, he provides for all we have. Uh, I've, I think maybe the best way of understanding our daily bread is sufficient for today. Sufficient for today. This is a petition not for what we want, but for what we need. And God who graciously gives, gives us what we need. Fourthly, or fifthly, D on your outline is confession. 
forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. By the way, Jesus is not saying that we get forgiveness by giving forgiveness. We don't earn forgiveness by forgiving. I think the best way to understand this is to compare this to faith. Faith does not save anyone. Faith in a chair won't save you. You had faith when you sat in that chair you're sitting in now, by the way. You had faith that it would hold you up. But it's not your faith that holds you up. It's the chair that holds you up. Similarly, it's not faith that saves us. Grace does that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For you have been saved by grace through faith. Faith is the means by which God saves, but it is not what actually saves us. And so so it is with forgiveness. We don't gain forgiveness by forgiving. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive even as we continue to ask for God's forgiveness. But we should confess our sins to God and receive his forgiveness. Or really, I I don't know that we could say receive his forgiveness. I confess my sins to God and thank him for his forgiveness. Because if you're in Christ, you already have his forgiveness. But we're still called to confess. And lastly, we should pray for sanctification. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should pray for sanctification. And so we should pray for God's glory. We should pray for submission to his will in the church and in the world. We should ask for what we need. We should confess our sins. And we should pray that he would sanctify us and help us to live holy lives even in the midst of struggle. But I don't want us to leave without considering and closing the importance of forgiveness. Because notice what Jesus says here. He says, for if you forgive others your trespass, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, Logan, you just told me that we don't get forgiveness by giving forgiveness. Uh, that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is saying. I think the key to understanding Jesus here is to understand how he, he does, or how he describes our relationship to God. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father. Notice there's not a change in the nature of the relationship. He doesn't cease to be our heavenly Father if we fail to forgive. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is that when we give forgiveness, we get forgiveness, and when we don't give forgiveness, we don't get forgiveness. I think what Jesus is saying is that your heavenly Father has forgiven you of so much that when you refuse to forgive, even though he remains your heavenly Father, there is a breakdown in the relationship. One of the things my kids were told very clearly in my household is that you cannot be at odds with my wife and think that you and I are okay. It doesn't work that way. You're going to have to make things right with her before things are going to be right with us. Now, if my kids, I think that there's a a picture there for us. When we refuse to forgive, it affects our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And this isn't the only place we see things like this in Scripture. Husbands, you're told that if you don't live with your wives in a gentle and understanding way, God's not listening to your prayers. And so in that case, there's, there's a sin in a husband's life that can cause God to say, you know what, our relationship is broken until you fix that. I'm not listening to anything you say. And so it is with all of us and forgiveness. When we refuse to forgive, though we've forgiven, we're like the wicked servant who's been forgiven of 10,000 talents and can't forgive 100 denarii or whatever the numbers were. God says, look, as long as you're going to refuse to forgive, though I'm your father, there's a break in our relationship. Our relationship is broken down. And so we have to forgive to, to keep that unforgiveness from hindering our relationship with God. And so the, the two questions that remain for us today, I suppose, are, number one, have you first and foremost been forgiven? Are you trusting in yourself and your own righteousness 
Because if you are, you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And unless you are as perfect as God, you are in need of forgiveness. And God offers us that forgiveness in trusting Jesus. Not only trusting that he died to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again to give us life, but trusting that his way is good, that his yeses are for our good, that his noes are for our good, that all that he has called us to do and to be is for our good. You must first trust Jesus and receive his forgiveness. And then the second question is, if you have Is there somebody that you need to forgive? Is there somebody you need to forgive? I have resources available in my office that if you're struggling to forgive somebody, I'd be happy to pass those along. And I have to do battle in my own heart for forgiveness as well. The irony is never lost on me when I pray that God would forgive me for my lack of forgiveness. It's a super ironic prayer. That while God can forgive me, I can't seem to forgive. And I probably should stop here, but I'm just going to say, I think maybe the most helpful thought for me in, in trying to forgive is that if I refuse to forgive somebody else, but then receive God's forgiveness, fundamentally what I'm saying is that the death of Jesus is sufficient to secure God's forgiveness but not mine. And if the death of Christ on the cross can secure the forgiveness of God towards me, then it can secure my forgiveness towards others, certainly. We must not ever be so bold as to deny the power of the cross through our unwillingness to forgive. Heavenly Father, help us to forgive even when we struggle to. Lord, thank you that you have given us a righteousness that we cannot have on our own. And that this righteousness through Christ covers all of our sin and all of our shame. Lord, let us never practice our righteousness to be seen by others, but let us do what is glorifying to you and pray what is glorifying to you so that you might be seen and so that you might be recognized and so that you might be glorified. Lord, let our great mission, not only as a church, but as believers, be to show the world how great you are, that we would be content with disappearing and being unseen, that you might be seen and that you might be glorified and that you might be honored. Give us deep and abiding joy in that. We ask it in Jesus' name.